0: just want to say um, first and foremost uh thank you to uh pastor Sally for allowing me this opportunity uh to deliver the word of god um want to thank my new life family for the endless and countless and repetitive support that you guys have shown uh me and my family during our our own period of of trials and struggles. Um, I also want to apologize to my oldest son because the last time I got up here and used the name and he tightened me up as soon as I got in the door. So to my oldest son, Kaden, I am sorry and I won't say it again. <laughs> he was not impressed. <laughs> um, I, I would like to also thank my mother who is here with, with, with me today. Um, she has been my cheerleader, um, my entire life, hadn't missed a baseball game, a football game, a track meet, a drama performance, a musical performance. She was even at the chess games. Didn't miss nothing. So just want to thank my mom for always being there. And it's no surprise that she's here to support me today. Um, And last but not least, I most assuredly would be losing my mind if I didn't acknowledge my hitter, my hitter. Ashley Marie has been supporting me and encouraging me. And tightening me up when I decide to get a little beside myself. Um, but we just want to thank you guys for just being with us and for us and around us. Um, we're thankful for all the phone calls. We're thankful for all the food. Um, you know, as, as many of you know, my, my well, she's five now. Abigail is um, continuing her, her battle through uh, cancer. And we're proud to say as of of last Monday, she completed her last treatment of chemotherapy. And even in the midst of the late nights and the trips to the hospital and the throwing up and the struggling to give her her medicine that she needs, God is still good. He's always been good. He is good. And he will continue to be good. And so with that being said, uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. So go ahead. And, well, we actually have people here, so I'm excited to do this. Turn to your neighbor and say. <laughs> this is exciting because last time it felt like practice. There wasn't nobody here. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and say, when the smart way is the hard way. look to your other side because we have more people when the smart way is the hard way. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to have it down packed next time. <laughs> Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you once again for the opportunity to collectively serve you, to worship you, and to praise your holy name, Father God. Lord, I just pray that as these words come forth, that they will hear none of me and that they will hear all of you. Father God, I just continue to pray that you would empty myself of myself, Father God, and that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, Father God. Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity um, just to share, share your word, Father God. Lord, we just pray that this word would infect us so it can affect us, so we can affect those around us. And we ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout my adult years, uh, my life has been connected to a toolbox in some capacity. From working on airplanes fresh out of high school, to working on factory equipment once I got out of the Marine Corps, to working on cars and now working on forklifts, fixing and repairing things has always been uh, one of the hallmarks of my life, any mechanic that's remotely proficient at what they do will tell you that the best mechanics are the ones that can that can complete their repairs faster than the time that's designated for them to be repaired. For example, if you had to have your front brake pads and your front rotors to be replaced, they usually designate about two hours for that repair to be done. And having your car back within an hour is what separates good mechanics from great mechanics. As I was still developing my own skills, the more experienced mechanics regularly dropped nuggets of wisdom on me to help me get more faster, to help me get faster and more proficient. After every mind-blowing experience that I had with these guys, they would always walk off into the sunset uttering the same six words. Amen. Work smarter, not harder. The idea behind the phrase is to suggest that the way I was doing things requires more effort than what it really does take. Another way of putting it is saying that the way you're approaching the problem is actually the reason why things are so difficult. And this philosophy doesn't even apply to just mechanics. Working smarter, not harder is a mantra that's expressed everywhere by everybody. One cannot explore social media long before encountering the same sort of, some sort of life hack to make life easier. 10 ways to do this and three easy steps to do this is just everywhere and presented in every way online content is to be consumed with the hope of making our lives easier and free. The problem though is that God uses our pain our discomfort, and our frustrations to grow us. God is in the business of taking our weaknesses, our insecurities, and our proclivities to carry out his plans. The problem is that God uses our journey to your destination to prepare us for your destination. So as we scroll through Al Gore's internet, being flooded with moral, ethical, behavioral, niptuck procedures, Christians are finding themselves unable to embrace the very hardships that are supposed to conform us into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of asking God to move our mountains, we should be asking God for the strength to climb over those mountains. Instead of hoping for our mountains to be moved, we should be praying for stronger hands for lifting. We should be praying for broader shoulders for carrying. We should be praying for stronger legs for walking. We should be praying for stronger backs for standing. And we should be praying for better friends to surround us. Amen. The book of James offers us A very unique perspective in the sense that he's writing, his audience that he's writing to, is exclusively to Christians. In his brief letter, he covers a few topics that all carry the same message of your behavior as Christians should be different. Our attitude toward our fellow man should be different. Our speech should be different. The way we hope should be different. The way we handle hardships should be different. The way we handle money should be different. And in the first chapter of this letter, we see that as Christians, the way we suffer should be different. Sometimes there's no workaround. Sometimes it's just a through line. Sometimes you just have to be led into the lion's den. As much as we want God and all of his glory to provide us with the dry land to walk in between a raging seas of issues, oftentimes we find ourselves bound by the ropes of illness, jealousy, loneliness, fear and uncertainty, and we're walking straight into the fiery furnace. So what do we do? The encouragement Jane provides in his first chapter can be summarized by saying, with Christ, you can, in fact, suffer well. So if your month is longer than your money, if your marriage is in shambles, if you find yourself confused, if you're raising children of the corn or children of the king, or if you find yourself on your phone with your doctor telling you that your four year old child has cancer, you can in fact suffer well through it. In these eight verses, I believe that God reveals six adjustments we need to make in order to endure hardships well. And in making those adjustments, we bring God all the glory. And we point to him as the author and finisher of our faith. The first adjustment we need to make is an adjustment in our perspective. Verse 1 and 2a says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. And with a seemingly pivot, he says, consider it all joy. While I hesitate to include you all in my assumption, let me just say in the past that I knew that God must have made a mistake. As if God was reading off of a clipboard and assigning problems for the day, I just knew That God had misread my name with somebody else's problems. But James tells us that there is no such thing as an accident in God's economy. The word dispersed in the Greek literally means planted. And the word picture behind that is not the farmer who throws the seed across an empty barren land. It's the farmer that takes the seed and intentionally places it in the dirt with the intention to grow. And so the implication is that those that are dispersed because of the cause of Christ are expected to bloom where they are planted. I remember the day like it was yesterday. February 25th, which is also Grace Marie's birthday. We received the phone call confirming what we already believed to be true. And while flooded with emotions and questions, I was reminded that it wasn't by an accident. It wasn't by accident that we decided for my wife to come home and raise our children. It wasn't an accident that we literally live 90 seconds away from my father. It wasn't an accident that when COVID hit, we decided that we would bring our kids home to raise our kids so they wouldn't miss an ounce of school. And it wasn't a mistake that our entire inner circle of friendship and support lives within 15 minutes of our house. So with all that in mind, the only thing I can do is consider my situation joy. I like the way the message writes this passage, and he says, consider it a sheer gift. So instead of looking at a problem as, why do bad things always happen to me? We should be looking for what we can learn from these problems. It's so easy to conduct a pity party or be so it's so easy to be. It's so easy to conduct a pity party or I can be grateful that God put me and his family in the perfect place at the right time to handle the storms of Abigail's cancer. And so when we have the proper perspective adjusted, the second adjustment that we can make is an adjustment to our expectations. Verse 2B says, not only should we consider it all joy. We should consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now that word when, no matter what language you speak it in, is when. And so there's three things we need to understand when we talk about when. Number one, not if we have trials, but when we have trials. I'm not exactly sure where this idea that as believers, we are supposed to be easy breezy like these cover girl models And life is supposed to be propped up with our our feet propped up in the shade without a problem in the world. I do have a question for those people, and I wonder if you really know just how offensive the gospel really is. The second expectation that we have when we encounter various trials is that there will be many. As if dealing with chemo wasn't enough. We had to deal with the fact that it wasn't going to take the 63 days that the doctor had planned. It didn't take long for me to realize that this countdown that I had been keeping wasn't in alignment with God, so I had a choice. Do we abandon the campaign, or do we make God fit inside of the will that we want to have happen? Third thing that we should we should uh, expect is that each trial accomplishes two goals. Number one, it validates the truth and it reveals your level of faith. Genesis twenty-two twelve says the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham and says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For I now know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son from me. And this is just a reminder that this revelation wasn't God's revelation, but it was Abraham's revelation. God will use a trial so you can see where you're actually at in your life. Is that me? All right, I'm going to just keep rolling. Um, So God will use the trial so you can see where you are actually at. The question is, do you really believe that God can keep you through cancer treatment or was that just lip service? the third adjustment third adjustment that we should make after we've made an adjustment of our perspective and our expectations is we need to have an adjustment of our memory verse 3 says that knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance that word know that word to know isn't speaking of knowledge through just a textbook acquisition is referring to a tested knowledge, meaning that you have a history of knowing that God is in fact good. Now, I'm not licensed therapist and I don't have any qualifications, but I would encourage everybody under the sound of my voice to grab a notebook and pen and begin to document the goodness of God. So that when you are faced with a situation that you can't handle, you literally have a personal resume of God's goodness in your life. Because the truth of the matter is, it is impossible to doubt what God can do for you in the future when you have a filled memory bank of all the things that he's done in the past. I'll go ahead and repeat it again one time. It says it is impossible to doubt what God can do for you in the future when your mind is filled with all the things that God has already done in the past. Now, I want to go ahead and take a quick step to the side, and I want to address a couple of issues that could arise in reading that we have various trials coming our way. Two things I want to address. Number one, God does not tempt believers. That word temptation literally means to put to the test. The only way the difference between a temptation and a trial is the one who is performing the task. This gives us the implication that the trial or persecution is only because of our clinging to the gospel. So if you get fired at work and you can't understand why, but you've never been to work on time, you never dressed the part, and you got a funky attitude, chances are you are not enduring a trial. So the lesson that is to be taken away from, I mean, it's just real. We never can figure out why we get fired, but we never punched in on time. We can't figure out why we get fired, but we start our lunch break when we get to the car and not when we punch out just telling you what I've seen. (laughs) But the lesson we take away from this is that any trial that you endure other than kingdom business is self-inflicted. And if you disagree, I would encourage you to ask Jonah. The second thing that the scripture is teaching, is not teaching, excuse me, is that we have to be happy about unfortunate circumstances. First Thessalonians 518 says in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in, in Christ Jesus concerning you. I'm not an English major either, but I'm so glad the scripture says in all things and not for all things. Because in all, because for all things, that means I have to be excited about Big Mama dying of cancer and losing her legs along the way. But in all things, I can be excited that my cousin came to know Jesus at her funeral. For all things means I have to be excited that I got more money than I have month. But in all things, I can be excited that I learned how to budget my money and realize that there's a difference between wants and needs and everything that I think that I thought that I needed was actually just a want that I really wanted to be a need. For, if I would, if, if scripture said that we have to be encouraged for all things, that means I have to be excited about my parents divorcing and breaking up of the family. But in all things, I can rejoice that it happened because of that pivotal moment is the very reason why next month I'll be celebrating 10 years with my wife. Because as a result of that divorce, the Lord knew that I was going to follow my mother wherever she went. And she went to a church that piqued my interest. And I said, God, if I ever get out, I'm going to this church. And it didn't take long when I got, after that prayer, about six months later, I was in that church. And little did I know, at the same time, this little peanut butter chocolate thing was on her way back to Chicago with no job. And we met and we fell in love. If I had hair, I would flip it. But the bottom line is that the joy doesn't come from the trial. It comes from knowing that the result of the trial will ultimately bring you closer to Christ. Amen. So adjusting our perspective, our expectations, and our memory, once we have those properly adjusted, brothers and sisters, we can begin to adjust your purpose. Verse 4a says, let every endurance have its perfect work. And that work—that per- word perfect comes from the Greek word teleos, which means completed work. Another translation has it said as to fill the purpose for which you are prepared for. And when, excuse me, when, uh, when Jesus died on the cross, one of the last words he uttered was tetelestai, meaning it is finished. What he was acknowledging is that the very thing he was prepared to do is finally finished. So the question then becomes, if we want to be gold, are we willing to sit in the fire long enough for all of the dross and the muck and the mire to be burned off? And if I'm being honest, this is where my struggle lies. I'm not a fan of the heat. A lot of times I want to bargain with God and I say like, is it okay to be 10 karat gold or do I have to be 24 karat? I'm tired of the fire. I'm tired of struggling. I'm tired of seeing my daughter's hair fall out. But if I know that God is good, then how I feel about it really doesn't matter. If his goodness is never on trial, then she can lose her hair and God can still get the glory. Number five, once you have your perspective, your expectations, your memory, and your purpose adjusted, beloved, the next thing that we would adjust is your prerogative. Verse four B says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, the purpose of the trials that we go through The reason why we tend to go through hardships is because God is trying to develop or destroy a character trait that's in your body. If God wants to develop humility, he has to destroy the arrogance. If he wants to develop boldness, he has to destroy the insecurities. If he wants to develop patience, he has to destroy the impulsiveness. And if he wants to develop sacrificial love, he has to find a way to destroy your selfishness. So if that means you have to walk alone by your side on with nobody around you, that's what God is willing to do to work out the issues that can't be involved with God's plans. And so God wants to take our hardships and mold us from going from I want to God. What do you want from me? Last but not least, God wants to adjust your priorities. Verses five through eight says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind for let not that man expect that he will receive anything of the Lord being a double minded man in all his ways. There's three things about adjusting your priorities that we should walk away with. The first thing is we should be seeking God first. God is not interested in being your spare tire. Not to be thought of when you break down on the side of the road and realize that that little mechanical winch is rusted solid and now you are without a tire. God is also not interested in being your insurance policy. He's not to be reminded of your weekly donations, your deductible or your premium. And now you're looking to cash in when you cause the problem. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. In the context of that, he was asking the question, people wanted to know, how will I eat? How will I live? How will I find clothes? God is saying that as long as your priority is to seek him first, all of that other stuff take care of itself. For the last two months, I have sat at home with no income, was able to take FMLA and be home with my family, didn't know how we were going to make it. We had a nice little nest egg, saved the way that we planned on living on. And God was like, well, if you're going to be obedient, I'm going to make sure other people are obedient. And they have blessed us. You all have blessed us over and over again. And not a light has flickered. The water has not sputtered. And food continues to be eaten. So not only should we seek him first, not only should we seek him first. Second thing is we should seek him confidently. It says, but let him ask in faith without asking, without any doubting. What he's saying is that what you should be asking for should be biblical. What sense does it make to want your wife to submit if you're not loving her like Christ loved the church? What sense does it make to want your husband to lead? If you're unwilling to submit to his authority. Just being equal opportunity here, we come down both roads. But the issue on the floor is that we, we, we really want God to resolve our problems without being changed ourselves. And it just don't work that way. Oftentimes God will wait for you to be willing to step into the fire so he can deal with you first. And oftentimes it tends to be the problem. God will deal with you first so he can deal with your problems. And so the third thing we should do is seek him first. We should seek him confidently. Third thing is we should seek him consistently. God is not interested in a hodgepodge faith. He's not interested in us seeking him and the ancestors. He's not interested in us seeking him and the stars. He's not interested in us seeking him and the crystals. God is not interested in sharing his glory as a creator with his creation. And so that double-minded man, he's not talking about just flapping everywhere. He's literally calling you a fence rider. The one who sits on the fence and borrows and grabs from every bit of religion just to make your own bubble more comfortable. So you can ask God for more wealth. You can ask God for more health all you want to. But if you are on the down low reaching out to the ancestors, you got a problem. And so God is the only one that knows why you are going through your trial. So save yourself the time and effort and go to him first. And so in closing, if there's nothing else that you take for this, remember that God wants to be in relationship with us. He wants a pure, unashamed, intimate relationship with us. But God is holy. And God cannot be in rightful relationship with anything that's tainted by the stain of sin. So even though God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and ever-present, he's also all-loving. And so before man had the chance to derail our fellowship with God, he already had a plan in place. And if you're unsure about your relationship and where you stand with God, let's get it right. Because having the right perspective, having the right expectations, memory, purpose, prerogative, and priorities mean nothing if you were to drop dead today and spend eternity apart from the one who died the death meant for us. To pay to pay for sins that he didn't commit so we can live a life that we don't deserve. Y'all know who I'm talking about, right? We're talking about Jesus, y'all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much. Father, for the opportunity to become more like you. God, we thank you for the ability to to know that you are more than capable of bringing us through. Father, I just pray for those that are struggling right now. Father, we we'll just pray for those that have more questions than they do have answers. Father, I just pray that they come to know that They don't need all the answers. They just need you. So, Lord, as we go forth today, we just pray that you would meet us where we're at, Father God, and that you would tend to us. Father, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.